You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at thevillagechurch.net. Village Church. My name is Charles Thomas, and my wife, Jean, and I have the joy and privilege of serving both in the Connections Ministry, primarily in Connections Central on Sunday mornings, as well as in our family ministry, where we have the honor to love and serve our senior adult community. Our reading this morning will be from the 12th chapter of Luke, verses 54 through 56. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, you know it's going to be a good morning when Jesus breaks out the you hypocrites, right? So I know you're like, glad we made it. Glad we braved the Texas elements and put our families in danger to be here this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Uh, That will be our passage. Uh, I I said uh, last week that what I'm going to be doing, you've got these two things happening. You've got the Beyond Uh, sermon series, which is, as Josh set up and as I set up last week, just an invitation to come into the work of God in this place at this time. Uh, And then you've got the campaign that's attached to it, and that's that's trying to solve uh, the reality that we have been turning away from this church for close to 20 years. Um, And in fact, I've done this each weekend. If you're here this morning and at one point or another, you've been turned away here, like either from the parking lot or getting into the room. Would you just lift up your hands? Look, all of a sudden we're like a Pentecostal church, right? Uh, Like this is a reality here uh, that we're trying to solve. And so those two things are going on simultaneously. So here's, here was the invitation from last week. We, We started with you. Uh, Like you are uniquely you. You didn't just show up here today out of nowhere. You've got a background and a history. You've got things you love about yourself and things you hate about yourself. Uh, You have been uniquely wired by God, uniquely placed by God, uniquely gifted by God. There has never been anyone like you in the history of the world, and there will never be anyone like you ever again. You are spectacular and not enough. 
And, and then the second story, we talked about three stories. That was the first one, your story. Like, you, like the things that you hate about yourself probably have some root in your, your background in history, whether that be family of origin or some epic failure or some epic victory. And, and, and then we've got our story as a church. We didn't just kind of spontaneously pop up here one day. There is a long history of sacrifice and prayerfulness and courage that, that's back there that build us into the community of faith we are now. And, and then we said, and then there's the story, really the, the only story that sits at the center of reality that a creator God uh, has created all things for his glory, that sin has fractured that, that God has sent Christ to redeem and rescue us and creation from the effects of the fall and that one day all things will be made new. And in the space between uh, you and I are meant to live lives of holiness and righteousness to push back darkness and establish light. And I made the argument uh, that the more your individual story and our story as a church folds up under that story, the more life, real life, 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 life most abundantly can be experienced by us. And the more we don't pull ourselves under that story, but try to live into our own story, even us as a church try to do our own thing, the more we rob ourselves of levels of joy and grace that only come when we orient ourselves around the story of God. He is ultimate reality. And so that was last week. Now, what I wanna do today, all I wanna do today is that story, the story, with our story, with your story, it's happening in a very specific time and a very specific place. Our lives are, we, I would use this word, contextualized. Uh, we are in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, which sits in a part of the United States of America called the South with its, with its own values and belief systems. And then we find ourselves in a specific moment of history. And so I want to try to lay some of that bare to us today, but allow me to nerd out for a second as we get started. Um, in J.R. Tolkien's book, uh, The Fellowship of the Ring, or if you're not a reader, Peter Jackson's movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, the, the first of the three Lord of the Rings series. Let's get rid of the Hobbit stuff. Uh, but what's happening at this moment in the book, before I pull the quote, um, is Frodo is lamenting. He is already exhausted, and he doesn't even know that it had hardly begun. He's already starting to lose heart. It ain't even got bad yet. So he's on the side of a mountain. He didn't get second breakfast. And he's lamenting that he's not in the Shire. In that bar, hobbits aren't Baptist, um, wanting to flirt with that girl, hoping to get married, and just live a peaceful life in the Shire. And he finds himself caught up in this kind of global catastrophe. And he's lamenting to Gandalf the gray, not the white, the gray. You're going to have to wait a bit to get Gandalf the white. And here's the conversation between Frodo and Gandalf. Frodo leads, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And that's, that's where I hope to take us today. What will we do 
with the time given to us. Now, the the passage that Charles read earlier, and I'm going to read here and again, it it finds itself in a context of its own. Um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount can be found uh, starting in Matthew 5, but it's mirrored in the Gospel of Luke and mirrored in the Gospel of Mark. And here in Luke 12, we find ourselves in that same sermon of Jesus's that we were in last week in Matthew 5. In fact, if you have a little bit more time today, you can just Go back a little bit, maybe 15, 20 verses, and you will read the same text that we read last week in a different gospel where Jesus says, you, you shouldn't be anxious about what you wear or what you eat or where you're going to you know, live, but, but you should seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added. Uh, and so after that, Jesus teaches in Luke. This, this isn't in the Matthew text. It is in the Luke text where, where here in this passage, Jesus begins to teach about being watchful for the son of man coming, and he is the coming, and he's rebuking the religious leaders of his day, and and here's the rebuke, that you're actually pretty good at seeing what the weather is, and you can't read the room. He says, like, look, you're able to, because they didn't have apps back then. He's able, not to ask here, but they're able to look at the sky and go, ah, it's going to rain tomorrow or feel the wind coming off the desert and going, it's going to get hot tomorrow. And Jesus says, and I'm standing here flexing the power of the kingdom. And I don't know why you won't see it. But like Jesus shows up and he's casting out demons, which for us, we watch a lot of weird shows. That didn't seem like a big deal. But you know that nobody in the Old Testament could cast out a demon? Moses didn't, Elijah didn't, none of the great miracle-working, God-flowing-through-power men in the Old Testament, women, ever drove out a demon. Jesus shows up and just casts them out right and left. He augments nature, he raises the dead, he heals the sick. These are all signs that the kingdom of God has come, and he's like, you know the weather, and you can't figure out I'm standing right in front of you. It's a rebuke for them to know the times namely that the kingdom of God is at hand, right? And and so here's what I wanna do. I wanna take a look at the times in which we've been placed. I wanna look at it culturally, I wanna look at it politically, and I wanna look at it in regards to evangelicalism as a whole. So it should be a lot of fun, right? Here we go, let me read this passage again. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, that's blowing off the desert, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? So here's what I'm going to do in each one of these categories, cultural, political, and evangelical. I'm going to use a lot of statistics. Now, there is a Mark Twain quote, I'll augment it just for young ears in the room, where Mark Twain said there's lies, dang lies, and statistics. And what Twain was trying to get at was you can come up with your own premise and almost always find statistics to support it, that statistics can be manipulated. So what I I really tried hard to do is not start with a premise, but but go to to maybe different sources than than you would think a a guy like me would go to. And so uh, all the statistics that I'm about to quote in the first two sections, I got from Pew Research, which is a bipartisan organization that does research, and they're not funded by Big Pharma or Big Media. Uh, All right? They're, They're not beholden to either political party. They try to just get and distill down. 
into what's going on. And then um, some of the other stats I got was from the National Institute of Health, uh, NIH, which are usually spot on unless they're talking about COVID. And then we all were struggling back then. And so it's fine. So that's where I've got my data. When we get to evangelicalism, I pulled from a different source. Uh, I wanted in-house to judge the house of the Lord, right? I don't care too much for those who have no idea what we believe or what we're supposed to be doing, asking us what we believe and what we should be doing. So more on that later. So here, let's start with the air you and I are breathing. At least four in 10 US adults, 41%, have experienced higher levels of psychological distress in the past two to three years. More than a third of high school students have reported mental health challenges. Here's how they define mental health challenges. 44% of teens report feeling, listen, this is a quote, persistent sadness or hopelessness. 40 to 50% of marriages end in divorce. That's psychologically like a death. And if that many end in divorce, how many more are struggling and on fire? He, let, me, let me start to quote the article. So what Pew does is they get the data and then they write like a summary paper on the data. I'll, I'll quote from them. There is a growing overall prevalence, follow me here, of inappropriate, intense, and poorly controlled anger in the United States population. Anger, that kind of anger, not just anger because anger isn't a sin. You can be angry. At, there should be stuff that makes us angry. So it's not anger that's the problem. It's the inappropriate, intense, and poorly controlled anger that's the problem. Anger was especially common among men and younger adults and is often associated with decreased psychosocial functioning, which means we don't know what it's like to be human anymore. There are, again, I'll quote them. This is crazy for a secular Uh, rag to talk like this. There are fewer friendships, lacks of connections, meaning and purpose. Listen to this. People feel unseen, and this has created a culture of emptiness. Loneliness turns to meanness, and people are now proud of their bitterness. Death by suicide is the second leading cause of death among youth and accounts for 57% of all violent deaths and roughly 1.5% of all mortality. Suicide rates increased by 30% in 44 of the 50 U.S. states across every age group, though most dramatic increments were observed in men aged 45 to 64. We have created a culture of emptiness and death. That's the air we're breathing. What do I mean by a culture of death? Uh, A culture of death could be defined as a culture that sees death as a solution to its problems. Whether that's suicide or abortion or school shootings or or you, you, you name it, it's all over the place. How do we solve this problem? Death, violence. This is the culture we are in. This is where the Lord has planted us. This is the air we're breathing. Now, The opportunity in front of us is that we have a front row seat for the abject failure of secularism. If you're you're wondering how I'm using that term, here's how I would define the term. 
loosing the surly bonds of superstition and myth was, by the lights of rationalist dogma, all but certain to deliver humanity into a golden age of liberty, equality, and sober self-improvement. So, so here's the promise of secularism, born from the Enlightenment, pushed by the rationalist, that would just say if we could get rid of the authority of God and institution and the myth of magic, if we could eradicate that from culture, surely what would fill its place is an enlightened, ever-improving utopia, a nirvana-like state for all of humankind. And it has done nothing of the sort. It has tore down the very studs that hold up society. And if anyone's looking out there right now and think we're moving towards a better world, I would like to know what your inputs are. Right? This is where we find ourselves. And so when we say... When we say in our, our 2030 vision that we are a welcoming home, when, when we say we are a refuge for the broken and the suffering to receive hope and care, a place where God can heal and enrich marriages, when we say that we demonstrate the ministry of presence as we rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, we, we are saying we want to be an antidote for a culture of emptiness and despair that we want to say to the world, You've got a place of belonging and connection here that there's a God who created you, who sees you, who loves you, that you can come as you are into his grace and his mercy. And we get to embody that in a day where connection and loneliness and emptiness reign and rule. What it means to leverage our gifts and our unique personhood in this place at this time in God's story is to be a welcoming home for the broken, busted, confused, doubting frustrated, twisted, perverse, desperate men and women all around us. Like this is one of the fun things about being here for 21 years. Uh, Josh mentioned it in the welcome, but we just got back from what we call a vision summit. We do them twice a year. We invite key leaders out, small group, 50 to 60 of them. And, and all we do on Friday night, literally all we do on Friday night is people go around the room and they share an encounter with God at the village. That this is where the Lord met me. Here's where, and some of them, there were really low moments, some were really high moments. And what was unique about this past weekend is the sheer volume of people that have been here 20 plus years. Uh, and then some, there, there were three or four different couples that met here, married here, had their kids here, and then have baptized their firstborn kid. And, and I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that for well over two decades, the Village Church has been a very safe place for you to not be okay, and it's been a place that if you will move towards, you can find belonging and purpose and meaning. Now, we're not going to show up at your house and force it. You will have to take steps, but this has been a place historically where as goofy as you are, you're welcome, and here's what I mean by that. There are a crud ton of former addicts here. If you had any idea of the sheer volume of people you're sitting around right now, like I, I love this place. It's the kind of grime I love. Like I'm always making sure my phone and wallet are on me because I don't know when somebody's going to relapse, snatch my stuff. And so I'm sure they'll repent at recovery and come and bring it back, but I don't, I don't want to wait three days. And so, and I love that. About it. And so let me, let me just show you, this is just a quick, it's like two minutes of just different people saying, this is a place we found home. This is a place we found connection and belonging. Let me show you that real quick. Everybody needs to feel like they belong somewhere, that they are seen, that they're heard. And 
just plain community is very different than biblical community. The way the Village Church has sees that and understands the, the validity and the importance of it, it encourages us to connect. Just in this past year, um, we have had several friends from TVC just um, kind of walk in some of the darkest parts of our marriage, and it was such a gift that we didn't know that we needed. Having a group of people that we don't have secrets, we get to do life together and feel like we just have a support group, which is rare and unique, I think, in adulthood. It's been awesome to experience people walking alongside us, even when we brought all that drama to them and they didn't turn their cheek and they just walked along with us, prayed with us. And for me personally, that was just unlike anything that I've ever walked through. We have been very blessed and fortunate that directly through the church, we found that group. They're just a safe space and then we get to be that for them as well. And it's just been a really unique um, community that we found here. Yeah, it really is okay to not be okay at TBC. I think it's, I think it's very assuring that we have that that basis and that foundation and that presence at all times. When I'm serving, I just I just love people and I think seeing people get connected or seeing people ask questions and being that that heart that can receive that or bring them to a group of people with, where they don't feel connected and get them connected, it's just, I don't know, it jazzes me up, makes me come alive. Like I really just feel my heart is closer to God when I can see what I can do for others. Hey, let's, let's make some eye contact because I wanna say this to you in a way that I hope is most helpful. There will be in you frequently throughout your life, whatever season you're in, a kind of dark demonic pull away from walking in the light and away from community because you feel shame that you're not more than you think you are, you should be. This is, this is evil stuff at play. Like God knew what he was buying in the cross. He, he didn't buy clean, put together anyone. That's not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is Jesus saying, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And I say that for two reasons. One, because some of you in here aren't Christians and you think you've disqualified yourself. And I'm saying, you haven't disqualified yourself from squat. That if anything, you're qualified. That's the only way all of us get in, admitting that we've made a mess of things, turning to him and away from us. But I also want to address this because there's a lot of this here. Spiritual formation, that thing that occurs after we become Christians, that theological term sanctification, it's that long journey home, is not always up and to the right. It, we grow spiritually slowly and oftentimes by stumbling and, and falling. And, and so the way it happens when this is your culture and it's acidic out there and, and you develop some coping strategies early on and then you came to know Jesus in a powerful way, you started to live a certain way and then you started to get overwhelmed again because of this or that, is those old coping mechanisms could fire back up like that one glass of wine can all of a sudden turn into four again. That bourbon at the end of the night can turn into three bourbons at the end of the night. The, the allure of the perversity of the internet that, can, that just lets us stop feeling all that acidity for just a couple of moments can swoop back in and hook into us again. And I'm, I wanna appeal to you to not run and hide. 
To be 99% known is to be unknown and to make a decision for yourself that you will not receive love, you will not receive encouragement, you will not walk deeply in a connected way to other human beings. That 1% will hinder every advance of encouragement and life into your soul because you will be listening to the whisper that's not even you, but, but what I would argue is principalities and powers, little just gnat-like spirits that are bent on twisting you up, that if anyone were to ever actually know that about you, there's no way they would love you. If anyone were to actually know that about you, there's no way they would move towards you. If you were ever to let anybody know that that's your struggle, you would be ostracized and rejected. And the only way to experience the grace of God through the grace of his people is to step into the light. And then when you're met by grace, it completely eviscerates and eradicates that little whispering lie in your head and in your heart. And so I want to invite you in. This is not that place where you leave your baggage at the door because you can't and you're carrying baggage. In fact, if right now you're like, I don't think I am, you probably got like, like one of those carts from the airport, right? You're carrying like all kinds of baggage, right? And, but we're saying we're a place that you bring your baggage and we, we let the Lord work on us all. And this, our response to this moment culturally has to be Jesus's which is come all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. It, it has to be Jesus saying, right, that, that I have not come to condemn the world but rather save the world from condemnation. That, that must be our posture. That must be what we are as a family. Do you guys wanna talk about politics? Does that make you nervous? It doesn't make me nervous at all. Okay, here we go. Just 4% of US adults say the political system is working extremely or very well. If you're one of those 4%, I don't wanna know, I, I, you're fine, all right? A growing share of the public dislikes both political parties. Nearly three in 10 people express unfavorable views of both parties. This is the highest share in three decades of polling. There's a comparable share of adults, 25%, that do not feel well represented by either party. A little more than a year before the presidential election, nearly two-thirds of Americans, 65%, say they always or often feel exhausted when thinking about politics, while 55% went, no rage. I feel rage when I think about politics. More than eight in 10 Americans, that's 86%, say the following is a good description of politics. Republicans and Democrats are more focused on fighting each other than on actually solving any problems. So, so what are we to do with this moment that we find ourselves in where neither party really cares anything about us? Are corrupt, crooked, perverse, wicked, sad, this is the best we can do moment that we're in? How are we to live? Well, the, the moment's compounded because you've got that kind of nonsense going on at the political level and, and you've got a culture that feels unseen and when you feel unseen, you get mean. This is from David Brooks' book, How to Know a Person. Uh, I'd commend the book to you. Um, here's what he says. Lonely people are seven times more likely than non-lonely people to say they are active in politics. For people who feel disrespected and unseen, politics is a seductive form of social therapy. Politics seems to offer a comprehensible moral landscape. We, the children of light, 
are facing off against them, the children of darkness. Politics seems to offer a sense of belonging. I am on the barricades with the other members of my tribe. Politics seems to offer an arena of moral action. Loved this. Well, I don't love it. It's just sad and true. To be moral in this world, you don't have to feed the hungry or sit with the widow. You just have to be liberal or conservative. You just have to feel properly enraged at the people you find contemptible. So now you have the collision of a culture of emptiness colliding with unhelpful, perverse, wicked options. In a world where feeling unseen, there can be this feeling of belonging by being improperly outraged at this or that, creating an enemy to attack. And so let me, let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not calling Christians to be apolitical. That, that's not good stewardship of the moment and history we're in. Politics matter because policy matters, because people matter, because they matter to God. And policy has, I mean, incredible effects on people. So, so the solution can't be that we're apolitical, that we don't care, that we check out. That, that can't be the solution. We'll talk a lot more about this in the fall. But for now, the opportunity in front of you and in front of me is to live in such a way that we recognize that we belong to a kingdom that's greater than any of the empires of this world, and we have a king on the throne who's omnipotent, omnipresent, and, and like he's, he's king of kings and lord of lords, and he doesn't run in four-year cycles. And that no matter what comes our way, the kingdom that we belong to is secure and unmovable. And so I say this not to be provocative. I've said it a lot over the years. Um, I have more in common with an Iranian Christian than I do an unbelieving American. That's kingdom allegiances. Uh, I, I think you've, you've got all sorts of uh, economic systems. You've got capitalism that, that says that, that most money goes to those who work for it and, and get it. And then you've got socialism and communism and all that says, no, the money belongs to the people. You should spread it out evilly. You should make everybody poor. And then there's the kingdom of God that says everything I own is his. Did I show cards there? I wasn't trying to. <laughs> Um, then, then you've got, but listen, don't miss this. Cause this is, I don't want you clapping at that when you clap. And then there's kingdom economics that says everything I own belongs to him and has been given to me to steward, right? That's different than these two schools of thought. So we ought to live in such a way that says I'm, I, I am safe and secure in the ruling, reigning wisdom of the creator God of the universe over my life. What an opportunity we have. Now, uh, I want to get into, you know, I should have started with this one because judgment begins in the household of faith. That's what the book says. Uh, before you start working out there, you probably should look in here, which is great advice for the church in 2024, right? Um, so, like I said earlier, I, I don't necessarily trust people who don't understand Christianity to judge whether or not we're doing a good job or not. That's what you're going to get on the Discovery Channel. I swear, if you've ever watched it, I'm like, okay. You're reading that like you're reading like something from Caesar Augustus. That, that's not, this is a bit different in, in, in what it is. And so what I did is uh, Ligonier Ministries, um, every couple of years, does a giant research project among evangelical Christians. And all that means, all, all that means is that that's what you identify at. Uh, the Catholics has been doing this for a year. It might be time for the Protestants to, to join them, uh, where I don't know if you've heard anybody say this, but, but they'll say he's a practicing Catholic. 
He's not a Catholic, he's a practicing Catholic, although like you can be born Catholic and then there are those that actually practice it. Well, it might be time for us to be practicing Christians. So like all this is, all this is, these people, because you're gonna, very quickly we find out they're not Christians. I mean, gosh, first question, you're like, boom, they're all gone. Like, are you an evangelical Christian? Yes, I am. All that means is somewhere on their Instagram page or LinkedIn or Facebook, they got a Bible verse where they're doing all things to the glory of God. That's the extent. They may or may not go to church. They may or may not uh, have any intention of following Jesus in any kind of way. But Ligonier does this big study, and then they put together a document called the State of Theology. Don't let that word scare you. you you're actually a theologian. You, you have thoughts about what God's like and what he would do and what he wouldn't do and how he is and how he's not. That's theology, right? The study of God. Could be a heretic, but you're, you're certainly a theologian. So let, let's, let's do this. I don't think you are. I think you're awesome. 53% of those identifying as evangelicals agreed with this statement. The Bible, like all sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but it's not literally true. Almost half, 44%, say that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Look at me. If you agree with that statement, you are not a Christian. We don't believe that we found the right moral teacher. We've saying that he is co-eternal with the Father, that he has always been and will always be. I don't even know how you land there intellectually. He teaches that he's God. He's a great teacher, except that he thought he was God. I, I don't know how you do it. More than 55% believe the Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being, which that, that's not as surprising to me if you don't have like a, a charismatic Pentecostal background. I mean, most people are like much more comfortable with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Bible. Get a little nervous about the spirit. Who knows what he's going to do when he shows up? He certainly doesn't care what we're asking and not asking. So uh, we'll just be careful with him. But if you're wondering why I keep calling him him, it's because he's a him. The Holy Spirit's a he him. More, I didn't even, that just happened naturally. That's not in my notes. More than half, 58%, believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 38% believe religious belief is a matter of personal opinion and is not tied to objective truth. 56% believe that Christians have no obligation to join a local church or community of faith. You know, this, I can love Jesus without the church. Well, let me quote my friend, Dr. Tony Evans. Here's what he says. I hear people say, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian, and they are absolutely right. Salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone, but you don't have to go home to be married, but if you stay away long enough, your relationship will be affected. The design of God for the people of God to be kept safe and to grow into all that he has for them is a local congregation of faith where there's mutual commitment to one another despite, look at me, can we have some real talk? And if you're like, I, I thought that's what we were doing. Here's what I can tell you. I am going to bother you. And here's what's great. You're going to bother me. And then gosh, y'all are gonna bother each other a, a whole, whole bunch. But when there's an acknowledgement of that and a commitment that iron sharpens iron, and I'm not just gonna pick up my stuff and run to the next one down the street whenever I hit opposition, but I'm gonna lean in for my good and the glory of God, what might God accomplish over a long period of time? 
Like, like this is the, the question. What does it look like for us to just acknowledge we're, we're all sinners, we're all in process, we're all growing. In fact, sometimes I think if you had any idea where that guy that bothers you was 10 years ago, you'd probably think he was killing it right now. Right? You know what I mean? Like, like we're in process, doing the best we can with where we are from our different backgrounds, and man, there are just gonna be times that we hurt one another unintentionally. Someone's gonna hurt each other intentionally, and that needs to be dealt with within the community. There's gonna be all this kind of dysfunction. You know why? Because people are welcomed here, and people are messy. You will not boil persons down into a, this is like, this is what they're all gonna be like. It's just not how it works. But the opportunity we have is to actually strive to be disciples of Jesus Christ here. Right? I am not, I don't stay up at night worrying about it. I don't like try to strategically work through it. Decisions are one thing, right? You want to say yes to Jesus and get baptized, we'll do it and we'll celebrate our faces off. Man, we love those stories. But I want to know where you'll be three years from now. Will you be deeper in community with Christ? Will you be deeper in community with your brothers and sisters? Will you have found how he's gifted and wired you? Will that be unleashed? On the wickedness of our day, will you be walking in a growing sense of gratitude and life? Will you grow in generosity or does your wallet still say you're the king of kings and lord of lords? Will you? I, that's, that's the stuff. There was, um, there was this saying, um, in, in, it was like a blessing in the first century that, that may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi discipleship in the first century wasn't, hey, I read your scroll. It was awesome. Can we get a photo? It, it was, I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to eat what you eat. I'm going to do what you do. And I'm going to follow. I'm going to give my life over to following after you. This is the essence of Christianity. What's the opportunity? The opportunity is to be a family of faith that is biblically serious, we're serious about the word of God, it will confront us over and over and over again. I've been following Jesus for 31 years, it, it probably 200, 300 times I've come across something in the scriptures and went, don't really love that. Especially when it's calling me to do something I don't want to do or confronting some compulsion in my life that needs to be corrected and yet uh, 30 something years in, I, I'm, I'm saying he, he knows more than me. And, and I know that like you, if you're in peacetime right now, you're like, well, of course he does. Moron, I should be the pastor. Okay. Um, I'm saying not. I'm saying when things get difficult and you get a little bit twisted and you get caught in yourself and you get confused and you, and you know this is what the Lord wants from you, but that's the last thing I want to do. Well, well that, gosh, I, I wish you would believe me. That's such a moment of love from the Father who's not trying to take from you. Like, how would God be glorified if his whole mission was to make you miserable? Now, are there times you got to cut a tumor out to save a soul? Yeah. They did that, right? Frontal. I don't even have one anymore. And here we are, right? Like, it's, an, it's a loving thing to do deep surgery to save a life. All the more a soul. This is the opportunity we have. So um, I, I want to end, here, here's how I want to read the 2030 vision again in its entirety. This is the kind of church we're becoming. This is what I'm trying to invite you into. Come be about this. Come help us be a part of this as we flow out of this room and into our community. And, and then um, I'll, I'll wrap it up with talking about um, the building. We are a welcoming home 
to thousands of people seeking Jesus Christ and growing in the grace of the gospel. We are a diverse community of men and women, young and old, single and married, discovering together our identity, purpose, and belonging within God's good design. We impact thousands of kids and students week in and week out with all our efforts wholly dependent on God. We make disciples across all ages. Every stage of life has a portion in the church. We celebrate 300 baptisms every year and we are a refuge for the broken and suffering to receive hope and care and a place where God heals and enriches marriages. We demonstrate the ministry of presence as we rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We send wholehearted leaders and disciples into their homes, into neighborhoods, and into our city and into the nations. We have planted and revitalized 30 churches and have 100 goers reaching 10 unreached people groups. We have seen more than 50,000 individuals reached by the gospel through our campuses, church plants, revitalization efforts, and goers. We have generously resourced millions of people across the globe as we share the gifts that God has entrusted to us every day in all spaces through each season of life. We are joyfully building beyond ourselves, living the greater story together, and creating a kingdom legacy for generations to come. Here's, this is the invitation. If I'm reading that and you're like, oh, I like it, but not really my thing, praise God. You're in, a, you're in a beautiful place where there's all sorts of churches you can plug into. There is. This is intense, and I'm calling us to intensity. I think the times require it. But if you're like, don't, don't have a lot of juice for that, pastor, thank you. I think there are places you, you can just consume. You can try to consume here. I'm going to try to rattle you out of it every week for your sake. For your sake. But this is the evidence. This is what we're building towards internally, externally. This is what we're about. And, and, and you raised your hands earlier, right? We got a little Pentecostal there for a second. Like more than half of this room have been turned away. In a culture of emptiness and rage and bitterness, when someone gathers up the courage to try to come just get a little bit of hope, has to, you gotta find that kid's shoe. Nobody knows where that shoe goes. You gotta find that shoe. Now you're on time, which makes you 30 minutes late here. And, and then you pull into the parking lot. Let's say you get into the parking lot. You didn't get turned away at the parking lot. So you're like, woo, we're, we're in. And then you, you walk in and you, you drop your kid off and you're like, okay. And then you come to the door and you get turned away at the door and then you gotta go back and get your kid. And, and you gotta go back out of the parking lot to get out. Like that has been the story over and over and over and over again. And, and so we're not building for ego here. We're not building because if you build it, they'll come. We're saying, and you know it, they haven't stopped coming and we have not done a good job of being the welcoming home with our space. You, you are a welcoming home. You do such a good job of that. It's, it's the constraints of space itself. And so here's what we're doing. Um, we, we're, we're this, I don't know if you noticed it when you came in. This is detached now. So that comes down this next week. The parking garage will be up by the fall. That should solve parking. It can be completely full and emptied in like 12 minutes. And then we're going to push out the lobby so there's space to linger. We've got a 500-seat chapel that'll go in right there, solves our space problems in services. 
And, and this project's a big, it's like a $50 million project. That number just blows my mind. But the cost of, of steel and concrete is the cost of steel and concrete. So I asked you last week, and I'm going to ask you again, would you begin to prayerfully consider what it looks like to generously and sacrificially give to this end over the next three years? Uh, and so on March 2nd and 3rd, that weekend, we're all going to bring our gifts together and, and lay them down uh, in front of the Lord because our economy, kingdom economics, says it's all his anyway. Uh, I, I read, uh, just so you can, I, I don't mean to be offensive. I, seriously, I never mean to be offensive. Um, I heard a guy once say that, that people who are like in the middle or lower income, they have a tendency to give sacrificially and generously, and wealthy people tend to tip. They tend to tip God. You know what tipping is, because you can't even get a black coffee out of a machine without giving somebody 18% right now. And, and so, like, I want to call you to generosity. We, we're not an opulent place. We, we're not, like, this isn't bougie. We're not building bougie. All right? We, we want what we need to reach the people around us in the place that God's placed us in the time that he's placed us. And this is how gospel ministry has always Worked. The whole idea, why don't you just give all of that to the poor? Because ministry doesn't work that way, not even for Jesus. This is Luke 8, 2 through 3. And also, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, Herod's household manager, you know she's got paper, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their own means. How does Jesus preach and work through Galilee with 12 disciples following him? Because women who had been impacted by the gospel gave of their means to fund the ministry of Jesus. This is how ministry has always moved forward. The people of God experiencing the goodness of God in the midst give towards and fund that same ministry. And so that's the invitation, March 2nd and 3rd. If you can be here, I would be here. It should be a really special time for us. And just come prepare for, look, this is a, a three-year commitment on top of my normal time to, to see us be that welcoming home that reaches into this moment at this time for the glory of God. Why don't you do me a favor? Why don't you bow your heads, close your eyes. I've already said it a couple of times, the building's the building, it's a tool we need. I'd much rather you leave with the invitation before you. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Maybe that glass of wine has turned into three or four, maybe that bourbon is turned into more than just a nightcap, maybe food, maybe perfectionism, maybe the lure of online perversion. What would it be like for you to move towards Wednesday night, 6.30 to 8.30 at Recovery? Gosh, what a, what a community of grace that is. You should move towards that. Join us there on Wednesday nights. There's a place of belonging and connection for you in this place. So what's your step? What, what move do you, you need to put feet to your faith? What, what's it look like? Does it look like coming into the light? 
Some of you have made this terrible promise that you're going to carry that thing to the grave. I'm not saying coming in the light isn't costly. I'm saying not is more so. Father, I bless these men and women. I thank you that even in this space today, there's, you know everything. Nobody in this room has a secret. No one in this room is hiding anything from you. And, and yet you have me heralding to them even now to come out of the darkness and into your light, come out of the shadows and into the sun, to experience the freedom of belonging to the creator of the universe. I thank you for your steadfast love, the hased love that you and you alone have. It's a seeing the worst of us and still moves towards. For humans, it's aspirational. For you, it's just what you are. We praise you. Thank you that all of this is possible because of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus and his resurrection. We love you. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen.